Any kids in here, kindergarten through third grade, can make their way to the back? Uh, because it has been a question, I wanted to say it very quickly. Um, September 8th, you, you've heard from Rachel, and if you're visiting, maybe not, but we're going to, three kids' classrooms are going to become five kids' classrooms, and September 8th is the date that that's going to happen. So if you're wondering, hey, one of those new divisions of classrooms is going to start happening, it'll be September 8th. Next week is obviously Labor Day weekend. We'll worship for a shorter amount of time next weekend, about 60 minutes, um, and there will only be child care for infants and toddlers next week. Um, but then the following week, Sunday, September 8th, will begin the new divisions of, of kids' kids' classrooms. Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is where we've been. I think this is maybe our eighth or ninth week in the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe more. I don't know. It can be confusing. Eighth or ninth week in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to go to chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to be processing the second half of chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles in the back, on the back table there. Feel free to pick one of those up, grab it, um, and, uh, and use it. It's good for you to see the Word of God in front of you as we consider what it has for us this morning. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the back table, paperback copies. Go ahead and grab one of those. Uh, that is our, our gift to you this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Let me read this section of text for us, um, and, uh, and we'll dive in. Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far off from me. That which has been is far off and very, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, but which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out 
many schemes. On July 31st of 2016, Jameson and Catherine Pals, along with three of their children, were taking a trip from Minneapolis to Colorado. They were going there to train for a missions trip to Japan. Somewhere in the middle of Nebraska on I-80, there was a construction zone, and they began to slow down for the construction zone. The semi-driver behind them was distracted. He didn't see their minivan in front of them, and he struck the pal's minivan from behind. A fire broke out, and immediately all five family members of the pal's family were lost. Why would the lives of this family going to Colorado to train for a missions trip in Japan, why would this, the, the, all of the lives of this family, so evidently zealous for the serving the Lord, be taken in such a reckless and cruel way? We ask ourselves the question, why? That's the beginning. That's our starting point. And this story and stories like it is what the preacher attempts to grapple with in the second half of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Why? It would seem that the world is cruelly paradoxical. The paradox is this understanding that on the surface we don't know why or what or how. But in fact, there is an explanation under the surface. But we look at the world and we say, see, godly men and women who are trying to follow Jesus with all of their lives, may, they may die young. While tyrants and dictators and murderers and all sorts of wickedness, these people live to a ripe old age. The, the preacher wants to grapple with this reality with us. He wants to give us a bigger understanding of what's going on in the world. But there is no secret formula for circumventing the reality of things. You say, well, I'm serving the Lord. I'm a nice guy, a good guy. I, I work hard. I'm not a jerk to other people. So then, therefore, I'm guaranteed 80-so trips around the sun. The preacher says that's not the case, and we know that that's not the case. Or we look at other people and we say, that person is evil. Look at the bad things they've done. Look at the people they've hurt. They don't deserve to live. We can't get around the fact that sometimes the good die young and the evil are sometimes made to linger in the old age here on earth. The preacher says it, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Not only do people who do wicked things continue on the earth, but their wickedness is actually the means by which they continue on the earth. So how does the preacher grapple with the fact that the righteous man perishes in his righteousness and the wicked man prolongs his life in evildoing? The, the preacher gives us three things this morning to consider in the text. Three things. The preacher recognizes the paradoxes that exist in the world that don't make sense here. And the preacher then rejects super-righteous responses, and then the preacher remains in awe of God. This is what the preacher does when he recognizes this reality, the reality of the way things are under the sun. 
That phrase, under the sun, is a phrase that's going to come up several times this morning. If you think all the way back to the beginning of the book, we process through what under the sun is. It's here, it's earth, it's this place under the curse of sin, broken. That's what the preacher means by under the sun. So as it is tough for us to swallow, we do well to follow the preacher. These responses to the cruel paradoxes of the world are what we would do well to follow the preacher in. Again, so first, the preacher recognizes the paradoxes of the world. He recognizes the reality of verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Last week when we looked at verse 14, just look up the, the verse right above it. In the day of prosperity be joyful. In the day of adversity consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We saw that God has made both days for prosperity, for flourishing in this life, and he has made days for adversity. Days where things are hard, days where things are difficult, days where suffering seems to be winning the day. And the conclusion then that we drew from verse 14 in chapter 7 is that God is sovereign over all of our days. He has everything under control. It is a weak God then who is absent in our adversity. If God is absent in our adversity, then he is not at all powerful, nor is is he even present, or does he really care all of that much? If he's not present in our prosperity and in our adversity, then does he really care? But God has made days of adversity as well as days of prosperity And so we can have hope that God is present and active in everything in our lives. But now we turn the corner in verse 15. We ask the question, well, what about people? Now it gets personal for Solomon. It gets personal for the preacher. Times of prosperity and adversity are one thing. But what about when someone you love and loves you, and you care about, and you benefit from greatly, is taken by death way too soon. And what about when someone who is a thorn in your side drives you crazy by making your life more difficult, oppresses you and belittles you, abuses you, does physical and emotional and spiritual damage to you, tears you down or cheats you or manipulates you? hates what you love? What about when that person's life is extended not only in spite of their evil, but because of it? That may be true for you. That person person that is a shining light when you see them taken too soon, and that person that causes your soul to wither, always present. This feels more personal when we get to verse 15. Friends, this is the reality of the way things are under the sun, where we are currently. The preacher doesn't say that you should like it. He doesn't say that we should like it. 
But he wants you to acknowledge that it's the reality. And that's why he starts where he starts. He wants us to pick this up, pick up this idea, understand that this is exactly what's going on. Ignoring this reality doesn't make it go away. Whitewashing our lives won't change the cruelty of these things. When someone or something doesn't go our way, or we lose someone or something we love, we tend to ask the question, why me? Or why now? And we try to come up with all sorts of solutions. And what the preacher says in verses 25 through 29, if you skip to the end of our section this morning, he calls these schemes. He calls these the scheme of things. So when we look at verse 26, and we see uh, this woman who is referenced, this woman who is referenced is a callback to what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 7. He's talking about a woman there, a woman that comes to seduce a young fool. We ask, how does this fit into our section? Well, this woman in Proverbs chapter 7 entices a young man into thinking that what is happening as he is being seduced by her, what is happening is an isolated incident. That is sexual escapades will go unnoticed. That what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And if we look at verse 26, the fool is the one who thinks that incidents of sin in his life are isolated. The wise is the one who understands that God is present in every moment. So the fool looks around and sees a tragic paradox, like the story of the Pals family that we led with this morning, and wonders why this anomaly has taken place. Why has this cruelty befallen this family? But the wise, the wise person, according to Solomon, looks around and sees that the righteous may die young and that the evil may prosper and live a long life. The Gospel of Luke tells us a story that is helpful here. In Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is talking to a group of people, and he recounts an event that has taken place in a neighborhood in Jerusalem. A tower in Siloam fell and killed 18 people. And Jesus asks the crowd regarding the people who had died, He asked the question, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus points out what's going on under the sun. Someone has died, 18 people, because of a tower collapsing. And like the preacher says, the righteous may die young and the evildoer may live to a ripe old age. Jesus is saying, when he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus was immediately combating an idea that, well, those people must have had it coming. Those people must have been living in wickedness, and so that's why they got smacked by a tower. Jesus, that's not right. This is life under the sun, he says. This is the reality of things going on. And the more that you try to make sense of it, the more that you're driven to vexation. 
There isn't a causal relationship here. Righteousness doesn't equal a long life, and wickedness doesn't equal a short one. That's what we would like to happen, but that's not the reality. And like the fool that falls into the temptress's snare, because who's going to find out? So we see the evil done under the sun become his collateral damage and say, why me? Why me? Here's what the preacher is driving us to. Three things. The preacher is driving to us to a righteous person and a wicked person both exist under the sun. The same world is where a righteous person and a wicked person both dwell. A foolish person thinks that wickedness is isolated, just little pockets of wickedness, and when the fool thinks that, he is then devastated when wickedness intersects with his or her life. A wise person, on the other hand, recognizes what our point is here. The paradoxes and that life under the sun looks a particular way where the righteous may live or die early and the wicked may live a prolonged life despite their wickedness or because of it. So a wise person sees that wickedness is not isolated but is part of the reality of what happens under the sun. The preacher says the right and wise response then begins by acknowledging reality. Ecclesiastes is a reality check in many ways for us. This is what life is under the sun, the world in which we live. Again, the preacher doesn't say that you should like it. Don't get him wrong here. He doesn't say you should like this reality. But he wants you to think about the proper response to it. I say this to my kids all the time. When they're fighting or something doesn't go their way, You don't have to like what just happened, but you can think about the way that you respond to it. This is what the preacher is calling us to do. Think about the appropriate response to that which has happened or is happening under the sun. Jesus in Luke 13 says almost again the exact same thing. Wickedness intersected with the lives of 18 people when a tower fell on them in the neighborhood. Not because of their wickedness, but wickedness and the cruelty, the sin-saturated world that we lived in. A tower fell on them in their neighborhood. And we don't know why the tower fell. Luke doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say anything about that. But we ask the question, when something like that happens in our world, we ask the question, who's to blame? Who's to blame in this instance? Maybe that tower wasn't up to code. I don't know if they had code in Jerusalem in the first century, but maybe it wasn't up to code. Or maybe this crumbling foundation was, was, was ignored. We ask the question, who's to blame? And we have to remember, before we say something like that wouldn't happen in our modern society, we have to remember that 12 years ago, 35W Bridge collapsed into, in Minneapolis killing 13 and injuring 145. This is life under the sun. And people are still asking the question. I found an article in City Pages, a Minneapolis-based news source, 
that asked the question, literally in the headline, who's to blame? Ten years later, this was two years ago. Who's to blame? One of Minnesota's U.S. Senators famously said, a bridge in America shouldn't just fall down. But it did. And the tower in Salem did. And the people Jesus was talking to wanted to know who was to blame. Those people, they had it coming. Those 18 people had it coming, didn't they, Jesus? Jesus says, no. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? I don't know what the population of Jerusalem was, but it's a lot more than 20. 18 people died. Not because they were wicked. They died because that's the reality of life under the sun. Is that tough to swallow? Yes. Is it reality? Yes. And so the preacher helps us to think through our, the next steps and to our response, right? Once we openly acknowledge the paradoxes of the reality of life under the sun. But we cannot move on to understanding our response until we recognize and realize the way things are under the sun. Again, we don't have to like it. And that's one of the primary points here. We don't have to like the reality of life under the sun. But we do need to acknowledge that it is, in fact, the reality. That's what the preacher's doing. And so then he moves us to thinking about our response. And he goes after a couple of different responses, and we're going to focus on one primarily here. So this is point number two. The preacher tells us to reject super-righteous responses. I'll unpack that in a moment. But look at verse 16 with me. He says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then in verse 17, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So, so these verses, though they probably seem strange to us on their face, he says, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. Yeah, yeah, we know. Okay, verse 17 makes a lot of sense to us. Don't be overly wicked. We're, we get that. Don't be a fool. Yeah, we get that. Verse 16 is where there's a bit of a rub here. What does he mean by this? What is he saying when he says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise? Why should you destroy yourself? What is he talking about? We think, well, isn't righteousness a good thing? We don't want to be too righteous? What does this mean? The answer is yes, righteousness is a good thing, but we need to talk about what he's talking about. Righteousness is the idea of uprightness. It's the idea of faithfulness. The one who acts morally and justly, basically doing what God requires. What does God require of me? And then acting in accordance to that, that's what righteousness is. We recognize as people, as those who believe the truth of the gospel, we recognize that we fail to live righteous lives we have all acted unfaithfully according to what God requires. We have acted faithlessly or immorally or in unjustly. And this is sin. This is the definition of sin. We miss the mark. We miss God's required standard. We miss the mark and that's sin. This is the violation of God's requirements placed on our life. 
And then where then will our righteousness come from, we ask? From us digging ourselves up out of a hole? We dug this hole in our sin so we can get ourselves out right? And the Bible says, no, you cannot. Our righteousness does not come from straightening up and just doing better and performing better. We can't. The hole is too deep and we're too weak. Rather, rather righteousness comes through faith. Consider Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul writes this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance or patience, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we could take about 20 weeks on that passage alone and probably not plumb the depths of it. So I'm going to hit on a couple things here because this is important to our understanding of righteousness and how the preacher is talking about righteousness. Paul says, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are credited, or the word imputed, they are given or granted or transferred righteousness of Christ is given to them, it's put on them, it's imputed to them, it's credited to them as their own. So if you're in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. It's given to you, it belongs to you, it is yours. Justification that Paul is talking about is God legally making us right before him by transferring our sin onto Jesus at the cross and then Jesus' righteousness, his perfect obedience, his upholding of the law, his morality, his justice, all of these things going on to us. This is justification. The perfect uprightness, faithfulness, moral and just living on to us at the cross. This is sometimes called the great exchange. Our sin, everything, every way that we fail to uphold what God requires of us, going on to Jesus in every way that Jesus perfectly upheld everything that God requires coming to us. Can you get your head around that? Like, we sang, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is, we have been joined with Christ because we have been given all of the benefits of him without actually performing for those benefits. So this, this righteousness then that Paul talks about, we are justified as a gift of grace. We are unable to dig ourselves out of the hole that we dug in our sin, but we receive this gift of grace by faith, by believing, Paul says, in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we ask this question, that, okay, so 
preacher. Why? Verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. What do you mean? Here's what I'm confident that this means. Don't add to what God requires. Do not add to what God requires. We could translate, and this is, this is how I want to talk about this from this point forward, we could translate overly righteous to super righteous. The prefix super meaning to uh, a thing placed over or added to another. Don't add to what God requires. Don't be super righteous. Don't overlay your own standards onto God and bind yourself and other people to those things. That's what the preacher is talking about. It's that simple. This isn't righteousness required for our justification like Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3. I'm hitting you with the fire hose right now. This is not our the righteousness that's required for justification that Paul is talking about in Romans 3. This is the righteousness that is required for the justified. Those who have received by faith in Jesus Christ the righteousness of Christ now are called to live according to what God requires, but not more. If you are in Christ, you know what God requires of you because he's given us this, the Bible. We know what God requires of us and we have the strength to live according to what God requires because he has given us the Holy Spirit. So if you know what is required of you and attempt to add to those requirements, that is what the preacher says is overly righteous or super righteous. The scribe, we're going to get to this in a second, but the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' time did exactly this. They saw the moral law. They saw the Ten Commandments. And they said, we need to add to this in order that we don't approach this. And so for every one commandment in the Ten Commandments, they added 55 laws. That is super righteousness. That is moving beyond what God requires and binding other people to a standard that is not God's. So you had, you had laws given by the scribes and the Pharisees like, uh, remember this Sabbath and keep it holy. This is what God says. And they said, don't look in a mirror because if you do, you may see a gray hair and you may be tempted to pluck it out and you've no longer honored the Sabbath. That is super righteousness. That's no joke. I didn't make that one up. So if we know what God requires of us, and we attempt to add to those requirements, that is what the preacher says is super righteous. I love what Doug Wilson says here. He says it like this. Clearly Solomon is not addressing genuine piety, righteousness, or wisdom. He is speaking of what all too often passes for it. You know, when you see people and you're like, wow, that person is really righteous. Like they're, they're a super Christian. You say that sometimes. Not because they're holding on to what God requires because they've added to it. Wilson goes on, he says, he is speaking of what all too often passes for it. Priggish Christian, or nice Christian, priggish Christian, sanctimonious Christian, tight shoes Christian, purse-lipped Christian, stickler Christian, insufferable Christian, know-it-all Christian, ostentatious Christian, quiet time every day or I'll go to hell Christian. 
conceited Christian, unchristian Christian. He spells it out for us. This is not Christianity. This is not following Jesus. It's taking more and adding to what God has required of us. When we require that which God doesn't, we step into super righteous territory. And this is what the preacher is warning us against. Wilson continues by writing, that we are not to be self-willed in doing what we define as good. We are not to be self-willed in what we define as good. God has given us the definition of good in his word through the expression of that which is required of us. So in our response to the reality that the, that the righteousness or that the righteous may die young, and the wicked's days may be long, we are not to add what God has required of us and called good. We're not to look at the Tower of Siloam and do what the crowd was presumably doing in Luke chapter 13. And we're not to look at the 35W bridge and condemn those killed because of their wickedness. Because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God is both just and the justifier. Similarly, we are not to ignore what God requires because something seems good to us. Something seeming good to us and being actually something that God has called good can be worlds apart. Jesus condemns the public display of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in ways that is ostentatious in ways that are over the top in the ways that are to be seen and yet oftentimes in our society as Christians we applaud these things Jesus condemns sounding the trumpet when giving to the needy and yet we puff up our chests as Christians when we see our name on the donors list of our favorite charity we ask ourselves is that harsh yes should we talk about it The preacher does, and so does Jesus. Jesus said very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To his first century readers, or to the hearers, they would have said, what? What are you talking about? Those are the most righteous people I can think of. And you are telling me that my righteousness has to exceed their righteousness? Or we can see the preacher when he says in verse 16, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Jesus says, those who, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is tantamount to destroying yourself. Being super righteous is what the scribes and Pharisees did. When they paraded their prayer in front of everyone, when they paraded their giving in front of everyone, and added to what God called good, they said, go into your closet and close the door, because if you don't do that, your reward is right here, right now. Your righteousness must not exceed the scribes and Pharisees in quantity. This is what Jesus is saying. Not in quantity. You've got to get more righteous. But in faithfulness to what God has called good and required of you. Not a call to do more, but a call to be faithful. The error of the scribes and the Pharisees was that they saw more as better. Jesus says, 
More is your way. That's a dumpster fire. God's way doesn't mean more. But it is better because He is God. And Jesus says that being super righteous will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. The preacher says it will destroy you. Different sides, same coin. And so many of us, when we read this, especially verse 16, we're in danger of being super righteous. We're in danger of making claims about what God requires that God does not. And then binding ourselves to these things and binding others to them and condemning them when they don't live up to our standards. And then when the wicked die, like 18 people in the Tower of Siloam, we say, see, they had it coming. But when the righteous die, we don't have categories. Why? Because we've called things good that God has not and required things that God has not. And just like the scribes and Pharisees, the popular teaching of Jesus' day is that a tower might fall and kill 18 people because they were wicked sinners. Jesus says, nah, that's life under the sun. What should you do? Don't impose your requirements and standards on others that God hasn't and repent of your sin and self-will. That's Jesus's solution. That's the preacher's also. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You don't want to be super righteous in response to life under the sun. That's how the preacher says that we should respond or a response that we should guard against. So we acknowledge openly the reality of paradoxes in life the way is it, it is under the sun. And then we move to an understanding of what our response then should be or should not be, in this case, a super righteous one. And so then, finally, the preacher grapples with the fact that a righteous man perishes and, and, a, and a wicked man's life is prolonged. He deals with this ultimately by remaining in awe of God. This is the, I don't know exactly how many times, but this is several times throughout the book so far, the antidote for what's going on in, in the world, life under the sun, gets us to this place where, look at verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, this reality, understand this reality, and understand what our response should be, and from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So again, the fear of God is the antidote for the reality of life under the sun. What the preacher is saying here is that we should not respond to life under the sun, particularly the fact that righteous people may die young and the wicked people may live long lives by being super righteous rather than by fearing God. And so Solomon cycles back into this idea that this is, in fact, wisdom. Look at verse 19. He says, wisdom, so he launches into a few proverbs here because those always indicate wisdom to us. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. On its head, that looks ridiculous. But Solomon is challenging our understanding of what the world under the sun looks like. It seems paradoxical. But in God's wisdom, it's the way things are. 
Solomon writes, the beginning of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despised wisdom and instruction. And so in the economy of God, the things that seem like foolishness to the world are wise. One wise man, ten rulers in a city, strength is given to the wise man. Those who fear God see that even the most upright in our midst sin. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Those who fear God know that they have cursed others, and so not to internalize all the stuff people say to and about them. Those who claim to never let an errant word slip out of their mouth are fools. Those who fear God see that His ways are very, very deep. Look at verse 24. That which has been is far off and and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And so the preacher isn't obsessing then over the question, why is life the way that it is under the sun? Rather, he's asking, how should we respond? How should we think about things the way that they are? Again, these are the three points this morning. Recognize that it seems paradoxical. Live and understand that reality. Reject super-righteous responses in binding people and yourself to things that God does not require. And then remain in awe of God. Fear God. He is God and you are not. The semi-driver who struck the Powell's family minivan served six months in jail. It was the minimum sentence given in the situation. It was not because of injustice or because of wickedness, but because of mercy. Rick Powell's, Jameson Powell's father said, everybody makes mistakes, and he didn't start out that day planning on killing our children. Rick asked the judge for leniency and said to the semi-driver, I know how much God has forgiven me. How can I not forgive you? Gordy Engel, Catherine Powell's father, said in the courtroom, we asked the court to give the maximum allowable grace. The responses by Rick Powell's and Gordy Engel to the death of their children, fathers of children taken far too soon, demonstrated fear of God. These responses are wise responses according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7. Justice and mercy are God's to administer. Life under the sun may seem paradoxical, but God is not. His ways are deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And as those who have been forgiven more than we can possibly imagine, forgiveness then is required. Not as a duty, but because of the freedom that we have in Christ. We are called to forgive because we are forgiven. And not only that, but we are freed to forgive empowered to do so by the Holy Spirit 
You don't have to wonder how you could because there's no doubt, Christian, that you can. Why? Because of Jesus. The sacrifice of Himself so that you might be forgiven and then the help that He sent you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Towers fall and bridges collapse. But rather than dream up super righteous rules that paint those who are wicked into a corner, we should extend love to neighbor as those who have experienced a love from God that we did not deserve. And we don't have to be just okay with things the way they are under the sun. And friends, the love of God is so vast. It extends much farther and much deeper than things the way they are under the sun. And you may have walked through those doors this morning. And you were pretty beat up by your week. You don't have to be okay with it. But Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, was there with you through everything. In the difficulty your week brought your way. Things under the sun are broken. In verse 13 of chapter 7, the preacher calls them crooked and asks the question, who can straighten them out all the way back in chapter 1? The answer is, friends, that God can straighten them out. And He is actively straightening them out through Jesus Christ. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, we considered it last week, just look at, consider verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul writes. And this is not an if expressing condition, but expressing that God is undeniably for you. Friends, if you are in Christ, God is undeniably for you. The life of a loved one cut too short the difficulties of parenting, the frustration of a boss who works you into the ground, years of enduring, verbally abusive parent. If God is for us, who can be against us? Why can you say that? Because of the reality that's given to us in verse 32. Paul closes verse 31 by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he begins verse 32 by saying, He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 32 silences our frustration when it comes, or it seems, like there is no possible way that God could be for us. And just the first clause of verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. When we are tempted to think that God is not for us, we must fight to remember and believe in our hearts that He did not spare His own Son. God can straighten out this under-the-sun reality. And He does through Jesus Christ. And He's just shown us exactly how He has done it and how He is doing it. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all. Heaven's greatest treasure, freely given, not withheld. 
If someone gave you everything that they owned, everything, their car, their home, their, uh, their bank account, their retirement account, everything that they own and have in their possession, if that person gave it to you, would you question that they are undeniably for you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God does not withhold from you. He did not spare his own son in your account. God did not withhold from Jameson and Catherine Pals. He did not spare his own son. God is undeniably for you. The work is finished in Christ. We live in a world that seems paradoxical at best, at worst, devastatingly cruel. God's ways are deep, very deep. And in his deep, deep ways, in his deep, deep wisdom, he crushed his son so that you may be right with him. We can't change the way things are under the sun. And we don't have to be okay with them. And so we run to the one who changed the arc of history. Who came not from under the sun, but from above. The one whose finished work paid for sin and obliterated death so that we might have new life. Life that's not subject to what seems so paradoxical here on earth. An everlasting life of eternal joy in the presence of God, our Creator. Worshiping Him, declaring His excellencies and the excellencies of Jesus. The one who came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That life is ours. If you're in Christ, that life is yours. It belongs to you. And that life is coming.